0: Haze. Hope not hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking virtue, sick virtue signalling, fake news. Create. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the latest Hope Not Hate podcast. Um, we've got a really exciting one for you today. This is the latest in a new series we're doing, speaking to various historians about fascism and the history of fascism, the history of racism in Britain and around the world. Uh, The first one came out quite recently with Dave Renton when we talked about his new book Never Again, which looked at the National Front in the 1970s, Rock Against Racism, the Anti-Nazi League, and this is the second one in that series, and this is a a really exciting, a real pleasure, I got the chance to speak to Professor Paul Preston, um, as today is the 80th anniversary of the end of the Spanish Civil War. And Paul Preston has written countless books about the war, and in this podcast he talks us through how the war came about, what happened during the war and why we still talk about it and why people in the anti-fascist movement are still so interested in this war. It's a really, really exciting podcast. He knows everything you'd ever need to know about the Spanish Civil War um, and I hope you enjoy
1: socialists are making enemies of the big landowners the industrialists and the bankers and the republicans are making uh, enemies of the church which has immense power over hearts and minds and if you like and the army which is the praetorian guard of all of this so it's it's a kind of explosive combination so what happens is the the, the republic introduces various reforms and these reforms are blocked at every turn, uh, there's huge amounts of money put into propaganda, and the things that the anarchists do, I mean the, the, the extreme wing of the anarchists, that's all blamed on the republic. So as far as the, the right is concerned in Spain, whether you're a moderate socialist, a, a, a liberal republican, a communist, or a, an anarchist, terrorist, they're all the same, it's, it's the left. They're all communists, basically, which is is kind of ironic because the same thing happens during the civil war. Of course, that uh, well, we'll come on we, to that. We'll <laughs> on to that in a minute. So, effectively, um, the because of the success with which reforms are blocked, the there's a great disillusionment and frustration within the, the socialist movement, and the more radical elements of the socialist party decide that when there are elections in November of 1933, that they no longer want to collaborate with the Republican, the Liberal Republicans. And that's a tactical disaster, a strategic disaster. And so right-wing parties get into power, and over the next two years they basically dismantle all those reforms that were successfully brought in. Along the way, in October of 1934, the, I mean... the. the in early in the first months of 1934, one after another uh, reforms are dismantled. Very cleverly, strikes are provoked as a, as a way of, of justifying crushing various unif- uh, unions. And when by the autumn the last one standing, as it were, are the miners of the north. They again, one could say, big strategic error. But they rebel, and there's a there's an, an insurrection of the miners in Asturias, Nat coincides with um, a a separatist rebellion in Catalonia. Both are are crushed in the case of Asturias very violently, in the case of Catalonia uh, much less so, and the general who ensured that there would be hardly any bloodshed later is rewarded for this by being shot by Franco. Um, But anyway the lessons that that are drawn from this are very interesting because the left in general draws the lesson that if the left doesn't have control of the apparatus of the state it'll never get anywhere that that's the key so this actually the the experience this experience of right wing government in the 2 years between 33 and the end of 35 basically convinced the left that it needs to be electorally savvy, that it needs to, you know, win elections and so on, and in the sense inclines it to be more moderate. The right draws the, the 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 conclusion that actually it might not win elections, and therefore what it needs is to seize the state and have and have control. So what we then get, we move into 1936. There's more elections again in February of 1936 in very complicated circumstances the left wins and then tries if you like to put the clock back to bring back the reforms but by now the right is determined it's not going to collaborate in a democratic regime and it's full scale preparing for war.
0: So that brings us to
1: 1936
0: as you say you have the elections, we have the formation of a popular front essentially which takes control. What's the trigger then? So set the scene a little bit, Um, you know, we haven't mentioned Franco hardly at all yet, what sets the, this is supposed to be a coup, right, this isn't a start of a civil war originally, this is a coup, set the scene and what's what's
1: the trigger? Well basically, you know, I mean, from the new government coming into power, which it does at the end of February 1936, it basically wants to bring back, to implement the reforms that it had started off with in the first part of the Republic and which had then been blocked by um, had then been blocked by by the right there are a number of things which are again quite complicated which is that the um, the the leader of the Socialist Party, a man called Largo Caballero who in my view is a monumental idiot he um, he thinks it would be a bad idea for the Socialist Party to participate in government. Now, the popular front was an electoral coalition, which included the Socialist Party, and that's where its strength came from, because it was a very broad electoral coalition. When it creates a government, if you take the socialists out, it means that you've got a much weaker coalition in power. You've basically got a coalition of liberal liberal Republicans. Larry Caballero, and this is why I said I think he's an idiot, he takes the view, oh, you know, if we look at what happened before, remember what I said about the two agendas, yep. the Republicans can only go so far with their agenda, so let's let them go as far as they can, and then we'll take over with a full-scale socialist government, and then we'll implement our socialist revolution. And maybe there'll be a fascist rising, but we'll deal with that e- easily. You know well, obviously, it isn't dealt with easily, so he is inadvertently well, no, inadvertently, he has effectively weakened the republic considerably. And then, to make matters worse, the very, st- very strong, very competent prime minister, a guy called me, uh, Manuel Athania. In very complicated circumstances, it's, it, it, they want to get rid of the, both the socialists and many of the Republicans want to get rid of the president of the republic because they think he's right-wing. This they do successfully, and the hope is there'll be this dream team. So the dream team will be, Athania will go up to being president, and at that point they will bring in the moderate socialist leader, a guy called Indalecio Prieto, and the, and the two of them will make this, this dream team. What actually happens is that Athanya gets elevated to the presidency in May, and when Prieto goes to the Socialist Party, if you like, to get permission to do this, Laro Caballero blocks it. So what then happens is a rather weak Republican comes in as Prime Minister. So what you act and Athanya kind of loses interest in politics and he's all his big obsession is uh, Prettifying government buildings and uh, organising parks and one thing and another. So basically, you've now got a very weak. So you know the apparatus of the state, if you like, is very very weak. What's the right doing during all this? Well, the right, of course, is is preparing big time. Even the allegedly moderate right is, you know, they're aware of the conspiracy. I mean, the before the end of February a group of generals has got together and they're already planning a military uprising. Now at this stage, Franco isn't that important. I mean, he's been chief of the general staff. I mean, I'm not saying he's not an important general. He's a very important general. But he's so cautious, he's so worried about his own status, that he's not a very active member of the conspiracy. So there's others who are, who are active. So... I mean, effectively, they—they are—they are conspiring. They're—they're um, they're making deals with Italy to get to, to get armaments and so on. It's—it's so it's, like all of this story. It's very, very complicated. That's why there are thirty-five thousand books about the Spanish Civil War. Um, and in the end, what what actually provokes it? I mean, on the one hand, the left plays a part in this. That that in reaction to the atrocities that have been committed by the right during its period, its two years in power, there are church burnings, there are assassinations and so on. Not nearly on the scale that has been alleged, but nonetheless there is a degree of this. And the right-wing press very cleverly manages to give... you Every day there are lists of... they, They bung together every bank robbery every you know every accident every thing that a pickpocket's done every you know every act that is illegal the bulk of which has got nothing to do with politics it's like in any society but they managed to create this image that the republic is a disaster that the people are living in fear of their lives that it's you know rampant anarchy that women aren't safe on the streets all of that it's not true, but it's very, very effective. And then, um, of course, the immediate uh, you know, alleged trigger, and it is a dreadful thing, that uh, on the 13th of July, the leader of the extreme right in, in Parliament, José Calvo Sotelo, is actually assassinated. And that then, you know, that, the conspiracy was going to happen anyway. But that gives an excuse that, in terms of international relationships, in terms of sympathy, makes it all seem justified. And so what happens is there is uh, a coup. starts off on the evening of the 17th of July in Spain's Moroccan colonies. very successful, very quickly. And then by the following day, the 18th of July, it's all over Spain. Now the idea was that there would be an uprising in every provincial capital and the conspirators assumed it would all be over in a couple of days. What happens of course is that uh, it's successful mainly in agrarian areas, conservative Catholic agrarian areas but in, in an awful lot of Spain you know, the working class takes over and then of course what was supposed to be a quick Uh, military coup ends up as the beginning of a a major civil war. So this starts off as a
0: very very Spanish war obviously but it doesn't stay a Spanish war for very long Um, in some ways it becomes a European war in Spain very very quickly so we've got Franco is not actually on the Spanish mainland at this point but he soon turns up um, and I guess the war starts in, in earnest so, how does Franco get to Spain and talk a bit more about the internationalization of this, this war?
1: Well, I think one could argue, you know, we, we've, we've just said that the, the wars really started late 17th, 18th of July. I would say that by the end of July, it is no longer a Spanish civil war, it is, it is a European war that happens to be fought on Spanish soil. So how does that happen? Well, of course there have been a lot of prior connections between Spanish right-wing civilians and particularly uh, the fascist regime in Italy, but also less successfully with uh, the Nazis. But what, what really happens, and this is what gives Franco his prominence, is that he makes connections... First of all, he, he's in... Um, when, when the war starts, of course, he's in the Canary Islands. He's the, um, the the military commander of the Canary Islands. He gets to the Spanish colonies in Morocco, thanks actually to Spanish right-wingers with connections on the right in, in, in Britain, and they organise the aeroplane that, that, that takes him to, to, to Morocco. And... What Franco's going to be important now from now on because he has a, a track record as a, a, a one-time commander of the of the Spanish uh, colonial army in Morocco, and that, so that he's back doing that. His first problem is how to. This is the the one bit of the Spanish army that works, as it were. It's nothing in terms of you, you know great European armies, but in terms of what's required for the Spanish Civil War, that is an army that's good at, m- at murdering civilians, it's spot on. That's ex- you know, it's a colonial army, it's a racist army. And, and Franco is brought in to do that, but his big problem, how does he get it across the Straits of Gibraltar? So he makes contact with the, milit- the Italian military attache, and to cut a very long story short, he basically promises that if Mussolini will help then he will ensure that the, and he's lying of course, but that the ensuing regime will be a kind of Italian satellite that he you know, will obey Mussolini and all things. This is not true, but this is what he persuades them. So the Italian military attache is persuading Rome that this is the case. And at the same time, there are a group of German businessmen in Morocco who are Nazis, and again, in mind-bogglingly complicated circumstances, they fly to Germany to try to persuade Hitler to help out in this regard. The story of what happens is actually it's 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 it's, it's rather interesting because when they get to uh, to Germany, of course, Hitler's not in Berlin. Other emissaries have gone to Berlin and no joy. Hitler's actually at Bayreuth in Bavaria at the Great Wagner opera festival, and so they catch Hitler on the night of the 25th of July 1936 when he's coming back from a performance of Siegfried conducted by Wilhelm Furtwängler, and he's all fired up with the sort of Wagnerian, you know, Germanic greatness and all of that. And he is persuaded, not by a lot of the things that people say, but basically he sees the Spanish Civil War, to intervene in the Spanish Civil War as a great opportunity to change the international balance of power. And that's actually what Mussolini sees as well, that both of them see that Britain and France, there's an Anglo-French hegemony of international relations, and they see the Spanish Civil War as a way of breaking that. So basically what happens is, in the short term, they both provide the aircraft that allows Franco to get his troops across the, um, the Straits of Gibraltar. Although he, he, Franco also organises a kind of a kind of Dunkirk in reverse of all these little boats going across, so-called the so-called Convoy of Victory. And once the, the Spanish Foreign Legion is in um, is is on Spanish soil. Of course, uh, you know with Moroccan mercenaries and so on, they scare the living daylight out of people. and they, they begin this very rapid advance, um, almost you know almost virtually along, well from Seville north. And then once they get to Badajoz, it's along the Portuguese frontier and heading heading for Madrid. Um, that obviously, the participation of Hitler and Mussolini is absolutely crucial. It's not the only key international factor. The other key international factor is actually Britain. Britain by... You know, the, the British political elite is basically sympathetic to the military conspirators and deeply hostile. They believe, again, for very complicated reasons, they believe that the Spanish Republic is the puppet of Moscow and so on. So they Quite happy with the idea of a military coup, but of course popular opinion in Britain is in favour of the Spanish Republic. So they come up with this idea, originally a French idea, but it's the British who put it into operation, the Non-Intervention Pact, which of course is totally unfair because it treats illegal military conspirators with a legal democracy as if they are the same, and effectively what it does it prevents. The, uh, the Spanish Republic exercising its rights in international law to buy arms and so on. So it deprives the Republic of the chance of defending it, or you know, a lot of the ability to defend itself, while turning, effectively turning a blind eye to what Hitler and Mussolini do. Now what do Hitler and Mussolini do? Well, Hitler we could do quite quickly. Hitler decides that in terms of his international policy, he doesn't want to be seen too much to be supporting the Spanish Republic, so he comes up with a scheme which will basically be he will send a high tech outfit called the Condor Legion, which will have the benefit of being able to test out new weaponry, Messerschmitt One Hundred Nine. Of those of your listeners who did Airfix kits, you know, <laughs> Stuka dive bomber. You know, a lot of the aircraft of the of the Second World War are actually tested. In, in the Spanish Civil War, and it's a sufficiently small unit to make, it, although it's absolutely crucial, but it's a sufficiently small unit to allow you know to say, oh, well, it's, these are all volunteers and it's not um, terribly well uh, equipped volunteers, but nonetheless, Whereas what happens with Mussolini is just just on, yeah, yeah, so, that,
0: so that's so that's the Legion, or those are the aircrafts that do Guernica. and so just very briefly because of well,
1: Gernika is done by. Um, Heinkel bombers, but that's another story. Okay, okay, but it's done by the it's done yeah. by
0: the Germans. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can't remember who said it, but if you look at the scale of Gunner compared to what we see in the Second World War Dresden and those sorts of things, <laughs> I
1: said it. oh, you
0: said it. Okay, <laughs> um, it's tiny by comparison, but it has a place in public consciousness to this
1: day. Um, why is that? Well, probably. I mean, ironically, it's all. I mean, there's it, two things. It's considered, you know, the first. Deliberate atrocity bombing of an undefended, uh, you know, civilian, yeah, and totally non military target. Um, so it's remembered for that, but it's probably remembered more than anything else because of Picasso's painting. But the irony is that Picasso's painting isn't actually about Guernica, it's called Guernica. But do you want me to tell you? Yeah, what I it's do, about? Yeah, yeah okay. I do. Yeah, so if you look at the painting, what you can actually see are things that relate to the bombing of Madrid and that was something that, that Picasso followed greatly i mean he lived in paris he followed what was happening in in the bombing of the you know the blanket bombing of madrid through the newspaper chronicles particularly in l'humanite well they were reprinted in l'humanite the communist newspaper but they were basically in paris soir by a call by a journalist called louis de la pre he wrote amazing harrowing accounts of what was going on and there are things in the painting, like, you know, horses being torn apart by... Battle. There were no horses in Guernica. But the other thing that got him, Picasso was from Malaga. And, of course, the when the Francoists had captured Malaga in February of 1937, there were massive atrocities. These were the two things that really got to him. Now, he had been commissioned to do a painting for the Republican Pavilion in the Great Paris Exhibition that was going to be opened in the summer of 1937. He'd already started. What actually happened, I mean, this is, again, very complicated, but a group of friends said, you know, you should call this Guernica because it'll have much bigger impact. But it wasn't actually... I mean, Guernica was just one of the, um, if you like, the motivations. Right, I didn't know that.
0: Um, mm. So we've got... Um, No-one so, else does, either. No, yeah, I know, I've seen the picture and I didn't know that. Um, so we've got... Uh, Germany has a relatively small but bit important force over there. Britain has decided non-intervention is the way forward, and I think is it, it's it been said the British people put, or put class in front of strategic interests there. But
1: the British... I mean, <laughs> the British ruling class did. The British yeah. establishment did, yes, because Britain's strategic interest would have been to support the Republic, because clearly what this was doing was tipping the international balance of power. And, I mean, one of the interesting things is that the the Germans are very aware of this, and there's actually an extraordinary meeting that takes place in Rome between Goering and Mussolini. And actually, Goering says to Mussolini, the the British aren't going to let us get away with this. For much longer, you know, we've got to make Franco hurry up. He's got to win quickly, and of course, appeasement, British appeasement, goes on almost to the very end. Um, So, and, and the consequence for for Britain is that the Spanish Civil War, at one level, I mean, what Hitler and Mussolini do, puts Britain in a worse position for where, for the inevitable war that will come the one thing that actually what the international brigades and the spanish the spanish republic holding on so long it does give when finally you know impelled by churchill or when chamberlain finally wakes up to what's going on it does give britain a bit longer to rearm uh, but you know the the, the, the the astonishing thing is actually the the short sightedness shall we say of the british ruling classes
0: so on no, the one side, we, a yeah, for <laughs> I know. So on the one side, we've got uh, the Franco. We've got the anti-Republican forces backed up hugely, partly by Hitler. But by the end of the war, Italy and, and Mussolini's forces in huge numbers on yeah. the one side. On the other side, we have the Republican forces. But this isn't a single uniform army, or is it? Could you maybe talk us about through oh, who man. are the anti-Francoist forces? Is it well, all happy families?
1: No, I mean, one of the, obviously, um, the first problem for the Republic is that the majority of army officers, professional army officers, sympathise with the Rising. But, of course, not, not all of them physically find themselves in parts of Spain where the Rising has been successful. So they have a choice. They either say, well, I support the Rising, in which case they either get shot or... or Put in prison, or they pretend to be loyal to the Republic. So, you, what you've got is I mean, th- there are cases on the other side, of course, of Republican officers, you know, convinced Republican officers, but they, they tend to get shot almost immediately because the comrades know who they are. So, so very, you know, there's hardly any, I cannot think of an example of a, a Republican leaning officer on the Francoist side who survives. On the other hand, I mean in my, my book, "The Last Days of, of, of the Spanish Republic," there's a lot about, if you like, geographically loyal officers who finally come out in the end. So that's a real weakness for the Republic. The Republican, the actual formal army, is riddled with traitors and saboteurs. So that, that's problem number one. At the beginning of the war, the uh, opposition to the, to the military coup comes from you know, its spontaneous workers so that's why of course they get mangled very quickly the you know they're sort of uh, particularly in the south when when Franco's colonial army arrives in Seville and they start heading north very fast you know they're up against peasants armed with blunderbusses and uh, you know scythes and you know farm implements and they get you know they they get defeated very quickly It is only, it is round about, I suppose, September, October, that the Communist Party starts trying to organise a proper army. And this is, it starts off that there's a a very effective communist unit called the Fifth Regiment, which eventually becomes the basis of what's called El Ejército Popular, the the popular army. But it takes a long time to get, it's probably beginning in 1937 before you have the, be, the makings of, a, of you know, a, a, an organised conventional army. In the meanwhile, of course, what we can't forget is that the Russians have intervened. Now, why do the Russians intervene? Um, despite, again, what much has been said, and certainly a lot was said at the time, you know, that the Russians always wanted to turn the Republic into you know, Soviet Spain, The Russians had no interest in that whatsoever. They were terrified of a revolutionary outcome in Spain because what they wanted to do, Russian policy was based on trying to encircle Germany, just as it had been before the First World War. You're frightened of Germany, what do you do? You try to surround it with reliable allies. The Russians had managed to ally with France. They had feeble hopes of getting some kind of alliance with the British, that really wasn't going to happen. So the idea of a, if there was a revolution in Spain that could provoke serious division in France, which it did. So that why, So in, in, in the light of that why on earth did the Russians help? Because Italy and, 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 and Germany were advancing so quickly that they were terrified that France would end up with a third fascist state on its borders it already got germany to the east it's got italy to the southeast and if spain went fascist then this would be a disaster because france the bulk of france's forces are in north africa how are they supposed to get to the metropolis well usually it was through a democratic spain that's not going to happen so basically the russians decide to help the republic out of sheer necessity not out of making a revolution, and of course you've also got to remember the Russians are involved in a war in China. You know, there, there's a lot of a lot of drains on Russian resources, so Russian help for the Spanish Republic is not unstinting, but of course it helps. I mean, it basically saves Madrid, and it, it Russian equipment certainly until 1938 is crucial. But it has the other effect, that it convinces British and French policymakers that the Republic is the puppet of Moscow. So you've got the Republican
0: forces centralised into a more formalised army, um, but you've also got kind of Trotskyist groups, you have anarchist groups, and they're not all getting on. Um, I guess probably the thing that most people know about the Spanish Civil War, if they've read something, it'll usually be Orwell, or if they've seen something, it'll usually be Ken Loach's film... Um, and the big debate is about: should there be a revolution, or should there be, or should we fight the war? Um, this debate still rages on the left now. People still constantly talk about it. What's your position on it?
1: My position is basically that it was, you know, that the revolutionary option. You, you're, you're talking about a war that is is going on against Franco who is backed very substantially by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and has the bulk of the of the Spanish army and the most operationally effective part of the Spanish mm. army, which is the, 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 the absolutely ruthless African army. So the only way you could, it seems to me, that it would have been possible to make a revolution would be to find some way of communicating with Franco and saying, would you mind just... Hold, you know, interrupting your war effort for say five years while we make a revolution. And once we've done that and we've restructured society and got our economy, our revolutionary economy going, and then we start the war again, see how we get on there. Now, that is not really very realistic. And I think a lot of, you know, obviously it is true, there were some wonderful things happened with collectivisation of, of agriculture. Collectivisation of industry, but it. So if we take both of those, in the case of the collectivisation of of, um, of agriculture, there were some places where it worked wonderfully, but there were others. As for instance, the, the, the really good bit of Ken Loach's Land and Freedom is when that debate, which is you know between basically smallholders, and you know effectively you're not just collectivising against big landowners. You're also collectivizing against smallholders who are actually almost as poor as the landless laborers, and so there are i mean one of the problems is that for instance the Derruti column and and when they go into Aragon and parts of of, uh, of of Western Catalonia, they massacre smallholders you know they do things that are hardly part of you know building the collective uh, enthusiasm for a war effort. So that's a problem with agriculture. And the problem with industry is, of course, that you know Spain is short of raw materials, it needs foreign currency to keep industry going, and again, um, you know, anarchists take over. Now, it's certainly the case, for instance, that there are many industries that when the Francoists finally take, you know, t- have, have conquered all of Spain, they find factories in better condition than they were you know, in nineteen thirty six many owners are massively benefited by the way the anarchists have run their factories. But, you know, it is it's not just me, but you know, the Socialists, the Republicans, the Communists, the Russian you know, believe that the only way forward was a conventional war effort because, you know, there'd been people like for instance Noam Chomsky, you know, that the who's big fan, or was in his day, big fan of of the revolutionary option. But the point is, he was making comparisons with Vietnam. Well, there was no Ho Chi Minh trail across the Pyrenees. You know, there's no... France was not Red China, you know. So so the
0: idea that um, if there'd just been a revolution, they would have thrown off fascism... Maybe
1: it's, well, I don't think it works. Maybe it's know? slightly more complex. And, and in fact, I mean, I, I, well, this is not for your blog, but I, I can send you, I did, a, I did a really detailed analysis of Orwell's book and it just falls apart. Not least, of course, where I actually found one of his letters in which he says, because I didn't believe any of that, but, you know, the, the poom was having such a hard time, someone had to stick up for them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: no. So, we're, we've come to the end of the war. The Republic falls. Franco wins. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting is one of your huge books that's called The Spanish Holocaust. So, I guess we finish his. I guess the reasons why the Republic failed, I think we've covered it in pretty obvious pretty good detail it didn't have a huge amount of a chance by the sound of it with the forces it was up against but you called the book the spanish holocaust and you talk about extermination so can you just talk a little bit about that process firstly why did you call it holocaust i know that was controversial and people have asked questions about it but what did franco do when he takes over
1: okay well it's not All right, so the whole question the key thing there is when what do you mean by when I mean, the reason I called it Holocaust is because I wanted a word that would shock, that would give some notion of the sheer scale of atrocity that was visited. Well, particularly on the Republican victims, but actually on both sides. And I did a lot of, you know, uh, I did sort of a lot of thinking about this. And there's an awful lot of Jewish writers who do not think it's appropriate to call what happened to the Jews on, in in the Second World War. The Holocaust, because it has connotations of sacrifice, of holy sacrifice, and it wasn't. Which is why, you know, an awful lot of Jewish historians and prefer the word Shoah, you know, which is Hebrew for catastrophe. It's a catastrophe that happens to the Jewish people. So that that's basic. And I also want, you know, I couldn't come across any other single word that would convey the sheer shock horror of what I was trying to convey. Now, one of the questions people ask me, which is a roundabout way of answering your question, they say, oh, um, how many people were killed during the war and how many people were killed after the war? And it's not like that. It's how many people are killed when the Francoists take over territory. And are there any left to be killed after? So basically, if we look at North Africa, Theuta Melilla the atrocities take place within hours. You know, the the, the atrocities are starting on the evening of the 17th of July. When you look at southern Andalusia, they're happening in the next two or three days. In the big Catholic areas, you know, Valladolid, uh, Pamplona and so on, the massive atrocities happen as soon as the extreme right takes over. So, you know, basically Franco's strategy, one of the things Franco is interested in is winning in such a way as to guarantee that his regime will last for as long as possible. I often say, you know, for Franco, when he heard Hitler talking about the Thousand-Year Reich, you know, Thousand-Year Reich, this must have seemed to him short-term thinking. Franco was thinking about eternity. And in order to secure the longest-lasting republic, he literally physically needed to annihilate as many republicans as possible. Now that happens in the repression every time they take over an area. But it also it's it you can see it in his military strategy. He goes for a very slow war. There are numerous occasions in the war when he could have won, won militarily in a way that Napoleon or Rommel or Hannibal or someone like that would have gone. But he says, you know, I mean I've quoted it in a couple of my books. There's an incredible long interview where he's talking to the Italian ambassador who's saying, why don't you hurry up the war? And he says, you know, that's not possible. I have to conquer Spain centimetre by centimetre. It's not about territory, it's about people. And it's true, you know, that that, um, if you think that they get rid of 450,000 people who go into exile at the end of the war, you know. Um, Anyway.
0: I guess, so this brings us, that's the final question, um, is this was a kind of conflict that captured people's imagination at the time. We haven't really touched on the international brigades, but thousands of people from around the world go to Spain to fight. They have a vision of the Republic that they believe in. But it also still fires passions today. People still talk about it. People still visit the memorials. What is it about that war? uh, And then why is it that people care about it today so much? Why is the Republic still seen as this... Uh, thing worth defending and thing worth fighting over still.
1: I think there are a lot of a lot of factors. I mean, in terms of Spaniards, there's so much unfinished business. You know, the, the, the historical memory movement. You know, the, what happened to their dead, justice—not in terms of revenge, but just in terms of being able to know where the bodies are, know what happened to the people who were tortured and murdered and so on, to be able to grieve. Because the dead of the other side, they were commemorated lavishly, in, in you know by, by the Franco regime. I mean, obviously, those families also have a right to grieve their dead, but but a lot of families on the left have not been able to, um, and it was there was just no question during the Franco regime, and the second generation they were brought up in you know in in in, in fear, and it's been great It's been the grandchildren who've started the, the memory movement, and that you know that that that's very powerful. I think for I mean for people like me, you know why why have I um, effectively devoted my life to it? You know, um, you know, in a vain attempt to overturn the results. It's like trying to overturn the results of a football match. You know that that it's a sense that the Republic did so many good things. And I would always say, you know, why is it that people went on fighting to the end in an unbelievably appalling situation, you know, in terms of the war weariness, the hunger, and so on? And they went on fighting for their republic. Why? Because, particularly relative to what it had been like before 1931, what the republic did for people in terms of agrarian reform, in terms of social welfare terms of education you know there wasn't really an education system before in terms of women's rights you know i often say you know uh what the republic gave the, the republic gave a lot to women and franco took away even more you know and i think a lot of those ideals and in a sense know, yeah, the notion we often hear the last great cause i think yeah I don't know if there have been other great causes since, but it's, it seems to me, anyway, that despite some of the things that have stained the, the memory or the reputation of the republic, and, and certainly there were atrocities there too, overall, what the Spanish Republic did is really worth remembering. Um, and there's a there's a great quote from Albert Camus, you know, when he says that um, the Spanish Republic shows that or the defeat of the Spanish Republic means that even when a great cause is defeated it's worth remembering I think that's probably a nice
0: place to finish thank Mm -hmm. you very much for for giving up so much of your time it's much appreciated